Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the week's news. Donald Trump and Xi Jinping struck a deal at the G20 summit in Argentina, sort of. The leaders agreed to not impose new tariffs for 90 days as the world's two largest economies hammered out a longer-term agreement. The U.S. will leave existing 10% tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports, but will refrain from raising the rate on January 1 as planned. In exchange, the U.S. demanded talks on its biggest beefs, what it calls China's intellectual property theft, unfair trade practices, and cybersecurity violations. After 90 days, if there is no progress, the U.S. said it will raise its tariffs to 25%. Chinese students have become such an important source of revenue to U.S. higher education institutions that one university is paying half a million dollars a year to insure against a fall in Chinese student numbers. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign says its business school gets a fifth of its revenue from tuition paid by Chinese students that its special insurance plan will protect its finances against a fall in student numbers caused by, quote, things like visa restriction, a pandemic, or a trade war, close quote, according to the Times Higher Education. The unprecedented move comes at a time when Chinese academics and students face increasing suspicion and scrutiny amid a months-long trade war between China and the U.S. Chinese nationals currently account for more than 30% of all international students in the U.S., according to The Diplomat. Google executives were so worried about internal opposition to its controversial China search engine project that they went against company policy to hide major details from security and legal teams. The Intercept reported last week. Paranoia was so intense that executives communicated verbally and did not take notes during high-level meetings just to reduce the project's paper trail, The Intercept found. Scott Beaumont, the project head, intentionally left staffers out of important meetings, according to the report. The China search engine, dubbed Project Dragonfly, would be a return to the Chinese mainland after Google shut down its site in the country in 2010 due to Beijing's strict requirements. The project has been the subject of debate since it was first disclosed in August, triggering protests from both Google employees and human rights groups. 
The response to last week's report, however, was particularly strong. Activists and Google employees have created a strike fund to compensate Google staffers who strike or resign in reaction to the news about Dragonfly. An alarming number of people in China don't know that they are HIV positive. According to the National Health Commission, roughly 30% of the country's estimated 1.25 million HIV-positive individuals are unaware of their status. And the overall rate of infection is increasing, jumping 14% last year, officials said. Despite these trends, the rate remains lower than in many parts of the world. Though China has four times as many people as the United States, the two countries' HIV infection rates are similar. Expensive urban homes have fueled wealth inequality in China, allowing the country's richest to consolidate their assets in properties that do little to encourage sustainable economic growth, experts say. China's Gini coefficient, which measures the distribution of wealth in a society and is the most commonly used tool to gauge inequality, rose by more than a third between 2002 and 2012, according to findings from a conference hosted by Peking University. This increase was largely due to rapidly rising real estate prices, but only a small group of people benefited from this rise in property values. The wealthiest 10% of the Chinese population saw their share of the country's total assets increase during the 10-year period, while the remaining 90% saw their share of assets shrink. Beijing has confirmed speculation that the China Broadcasting Network will be the country's fourth 5G carrier, a development which an analyst described as, quote, illogical. Currently, China's wireless market is dominated by three state-owned giants, China Mobile, China Unicom, and China Telecom. China Broadcasting was formed in 2014 by combining many of the country's regional cable TV operators. It was originally set up to run cable networks, but was granted a license to operate internet and telecom services in 2016. According to Mitchell Kim, a Hong Kong-based analyst, quote, it's illogical to have a fourth operator since the sector is already competitive and the government does not need to generate revenue by selling off a new spectrum. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a deeper dive into some of the week's news. First up is Doug Young, managing editor of Caixin Global. Doug, today we have a story about trains in China, but this is unusually not about the high-speed rail. Uh, What is the story? For once, you're right, we're not talking about the high-speed rail, which tends to get all the headlines. The trains that travel up to 350 kilometers an hour. This is looking instead back at the traditional rail line in China, which is actually still quite heavily used. You know, even though the high-speed rail gets all the headlines, the traditional rail actually has about two-thirds of China's capacity in terms of passenger capacity. So uh, it's it's still really widely used. And, and I can remember, you know, when I lived here first in the 80s, I mean, this was everybody took the trains. People rarely flew and, and the train sort of had a, a big reputation for being always late. They were always overcrowded. People sort of flow, you know, overflowing out the windows, people handing in stuff through the windows, cigarette smoke everywhere. Uh, So this is the trains that we're talking about. The news this time around is that finally these trains are going to get their own speed upgrade because these trains, again, are notoriously slow. 
The story is China's rail operator is, has just gotten the green light on this new series, this new class of, of carriages that will be able to go up to 160 kilometers per hour, which is fairly fast. We're talking like 100 miles an hour. So it's not slow, but it's a significant upgrade from the previous or the current generation of cars, which, like I say, that series dates all the way back to the 1960s. And those are capable of doing 120 to 130 kilometers per hour. So, you know, we're talking probably about 25% increase in maximum speed. And I think, you know, the real result will actually be quite a bit faster because a lot of these older trains didn't go anywhere near 120 kilometers per hour. They were probably averaging 50 kilometers per hour. These local trains that just stopped at every little, you know, stop in, in the countryside. So um, it, it should be a pretty big upgrade. The interesting part is a lot of listeners are going to think that these upgrades are similar to the ones done on high-speed rails, but that's not the case, right? Uh, why is this upgrade different? Uh, is this just on the carriages or is there something separate going on? So to do the high-speed rail, they had to build a whole new network. And basically, it's up to about 25,000 kilometers from scratch because this high-speed rail requires very, very precise stuff. Uh, it, specifically, it requires very straight track because, you know, when something's traveling that fast, they can't do these kinds of curves that the older trains do. The other thing it requires, too, is also that the tracks be very smooth because when you're going, again, 350 kilometers per hour, you don't want to be like hitting even the smallest whatever in the tracks. So basically, they built up a whole network to accommodate high-speed rail. But at the same time, there's a much bigger, older network. And that's what's getting the upgrade now. And rather than upgrade the track, which should already be capable of handling up to, you know, whatever, 200 kilometers per hour. So rather than upgrade that, they're just upgrading the cars so that you can, you know, it's like the highway is still there. You're just getting a car with a faster engine. So how much quicker are we actually going to be able to get around, uh, particularly in rural areas on the countryside uh, where, you know, the high speed rail network hasn't been extended? They're going to get significant time savings. The report that we wrote said for a thousand kilometer trip, the savings could be anywhere from a one hour savings all the way up to as much as seven hours. So, you know, if you're talking some of these older trips that maybe took 30 hours to go thousand, 2000 kilometers, you know, you're, you're talking a pretty big saving. So you'll be able to do the trips much more quickly. And, and hopefully these new carriages will also be designed a little more comfortably than the old ones, which weren't the most comfortable to sit in either. Thanks a lot, Doug. And we will talk to you again soon, man. Okay. Thanks, guys. Next up is Jingxuan Tang, reporter at Caixin Global, with a story about a really ambitious project in western China's Qinghai province. Uh, tell us of this big project out in Qinghai. So researchers from Chinese universities are going to launch crystals into the sky to form clouds over the Qinghai-Tibet plateau, which is where major Asian rivers like the Yangtze and the Mekong start there. It's known as the roof of the world, but also a very important water source for China. So they're going to make it rain there, add water to these rivers. And this is a pretty big project. It's being supported by the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation. It's a state-owned company that also plays a major role in its space program. And what's happened recently, Xinhua reported that they were building six satellites to monitor water conditions for the project. And so that's kind of how it got back in the news. 
And last week, a publication sponsored by the Chinese Academy of Sciences published a collection of criticisms from prominent academics about the project. So they're calling it delusional and preposterous and with no scientific basis and no technical feasibility. This is coming from a professor at the National University of Defense Technology. So before we discuss the dissension and uh, the reasons for it, uh, to me, this doesn't sound like a run-of-the-mill plan to shut down a few factories before a state visit or a large event. Uh, it sounds like uh, they're trying to harness air currents in the region. What, what is that all about? Yeah, it's like a current in the air that has more moisture than the air around it. And the plan is to harness this. The most important detail is they're going to turn a place that has very low precipitation usually into a pretty rainy place. That's possibly going to change the environment. Is this part of where the criticism stems from? Seeding clouds is feasible, and it has been done on a small scale, but like this is a huge area, the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau. So how does this fit into the context of outlandish geoengineering plans in China? There have been a bunch of projects that sound more like fantasy than reality. I don't know if you heard recently the alleged plan by the Chengdu government to build their own artificial moon. And then more recently, in fact, after this Sky River project got criticized, a Chinese scientist claimed to have created the world's first gene-edited babies. And that has caused some shock and outrage around the world. So Sky River, artificial moon, gene-edited babies, uh, but we just can't get rid of the smog, huh? Right. This is the future. Got it. Uh, Jingxuan, thanks for, for talking to us. Thank you, Kaiser. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Lee Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Seneca network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.